Welcome to the VMAS podcast. My name is David Schrock, pastor of preaching theology at Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. And today I'm excited to begin a second season of our podcast that helps you read the Bible and prayerfully helps you read the Bible better. Uh, today begins a new season for us at VMAS. Last year, our time was cut short by a number of factors, uh, both related to time, health, and actually challenges that we faced in our own Bible reading. We'll talk a little bit about that today and in our next podcast as well. Today, as we read through the book of Isaiah together, we're welcoming Peter Gentry uh, to the podcast. Two things that are new for this season are the format of the Bible reading plan that we are doing here on the podcast and the inclusion of more guests. Let me say a word about each of those. First of all, we have a new reading plan that we're going to follow. Last year, this podcast followed the trusted reading plan by Robert Murray McShane. Uh, it as a plan that focuses on four readings per day from different parts of the Bible, or two readings per day if you cut the reading plan in half. That's what our church has done. We're in year two of that. Uh, last year, we discussed many of the books of the Bible as we read through that reading plan. But over time, I found myself struggling to, to keep up, actually, with the, the daily reading plan that McShane offers. Uh, my mind and life just uh, don't excel at reading one chapter for one place, another chapter uh, each day. Uh, so I found myself reverting back to old reading habits where I would just take larger chunks of one book and kind of think through that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, that some of our uh, podcasting fell off last year. Uh, the happy result of that, though, is a, a new reading plan called the Via Emmaus Reading Plan that focuses on one book of the Bible per month. And so uh, in this year, we're going through track two of that reading plan. You can find that actually uh, on my website, davidtrock.com. Uh, and it's a reading plan that just has to go deeper uh, into one book at one time. And Isaiah is that book for this month. So that's the, the first new thing that's taking place this year, a new reading plan. And again, you can find details online. The second new thing is the inclusion of new voices. Uh, it's my aim this year to have at least one scholar or pastor or theologian to discuss various books or topics that we find in each book. Uh, Anton and I will get again... Uh, that. Anton and I will get together again to discuss what we're learning uh, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the other books as well, uh, but we're also going to enlarge uh, just the, the voices that we hear from and benefit from gaining insights from trusted scholars. Uh, God has blessed his church with many gifted teachers, and we want to learn from them, uh, so hopefully we can provide some helpful Bible teachers to assist us in the coming months, and that leads us to today's conversation about the book of Isaiah with Dr. Gentry. Dr. Gentry is the Donald L. Williams Professor of Old Testament Interpretation at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, prior to that, he served on the faculty uh, at Toronto Baptist Seminary and Bible College for 15 years. Dr. Gentry is the author of many articles on biblical interpretation, the Old Testament and original languages, uh, and he's written multiple books, including Kingdom Through Covenant, uh, which he co-authored with Steve Wellam, and How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets. Uh, and really, it's this last book that introduces modern readers to the strange and beautiful world of the prophets. And he talks a lot about Isaiah, the book that we're looking at uh, this month. And so really excited to have a conversation with him. So Dr. Gentry, welcome to the VMA podcast. Thank you very kindly. As we kind of look at this really big book, uh, some have already begun reading it. Some may have completed it. Some may be in the beginning or in the challenging chapters of uh, Isaiah 13 through 27. Uh, help us to, uh, to think through just the, the landscape of Isaiah. In your book, you have kind of an outline uh, that you give to us. G give us just a, a brief rundown of what we can expect in the whole book of Isaiah. God has made a covenant with Israel. And Israel has not been a faithful 
and loyal covenant partner. Okay. And uh, the covenant entailed uh, blessings for uh, faithfulness and loyalty and obedience, and uh, also uh, curses for disloyalty and covenant unfaithfulness. And God has been extremely patient with Israel, but uh, now he has to fulfill his uh, promises and his threats uh, for covenant disloyalty. The final curse in the covenant document is exile, Mm -hmm. that God will not only allow but bring enemies against Israel who will conquer them and take them away from their land. One of the things we need to realize is that the exile is not a single event, but it's a process. Hmm. Uh, And God has actually been fulfilling these promises over a long period of time. Uh, Already beginning with Solomon, uh, cities are lost in the north, and then they lose the northern tribal territories of um, Naphtali and Zebulun, and then there isn't that much left of the northern kingdom except the big tribe of Ephraim, Mm. and uh, what happens is the Assyrians come and attack the northern kingdom. They attack in 732 and conquer the northern kingdom, Uh, and then they come back in 722 and destroy the northern kingdom and take it away into exile. So Isaiah's ministry begins about 20, 20 years before that, And we can see that uh, the northern kingdom is lost during his time. Then later on, during Isaiah's time, the Assyrians come and they conquer over 48 cities in Judah. So most of the the southern kingdom is conquered Hmm. and that only leaves the city of Jerusalem uh, left. So uh, Isaiah is living during the time in which the the covenant curses are being fulfilled. The country of Israel is being is being conquered bit by bit and taken away from God's people, and they're being sent into exile. So if someone and, wanted to find those covenant curses, where would they find those? Is that Leviticus 26, 27, Deuteronomy 27, 28? Is that where they'd find yeah, those? Yes, they're in, in those chapters. Uh, Israel would experience blessings and cursings in a very earthly way, so... Hmm. If they were faithful to the covenant, you would have a, a, a nice wife, a nice family, a nice house, hmm. a nice farm, hmm. wonderful flocks and herds. Your crops would grow wonderfully. And when you when your enemies come, you would go down to the gate with five strapping sons standing behind you, and the enemy would take off. But if they disobeyed, all of these things would be reversed, and finally God would send his people into exile. Got it. So the theme of the book of Isaiah mm-hmm. is the transformation of Zion. Got it. That is how we get from a corrupt Jerusalem in the old creation to a new, a changed, new and transformed Zion in the new creation. Amen. The Jerusalem in the old creation is completely corrupt because they, by violating the covenant, instead of loving God, they've become devoted to idolatry. They're looking for help and answers in other sources besides the Lord. Mm-hmm. And they're also not, in, instead of loving their neighbor as themselves, the entire society is filled with all kinds of social injustices. 
And so um, this is the corrupt Jerusalem that is going to be changed. It, it, first of all, it will be disciplined and judged. Mm -hmm. The wonderful thing is that that judgment is not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. God plans to, to restore his people and remake them mm. from scratch. In chapter 51, uh, God says, did he, not, did he not call Abraham when he was one? Mm. So God made Israel out of one person, and uh, in this case, he's going, to, he's going to judge Israel, and the remnant of what's left may actually end up by being only one person, but that's not a problem. God can remake Israel from one person. Yeah, okay, because that would even help us to understand how Isaiah looks forward to the future, ultimately finding right. fulfillment in that one in Christ, and how there is a, exactly. a new people that begins again in Christ. The important thing is to realize how Hebrew literature works. It, yeah, tell us Hebrew about that. Hebrew literature is based on repetition. Okay. So you start you start up a conversation on a topic, and you go around that topic, and then you shut that conversation down, hmm. and then you start up another conversation on another topic. The listener realizes that instead of talking about a new topic, you're talking about the same topic from a different uh, angle, a different perspective, a different point of view. Okay. And when you have those two conversations out there, mm -hmm. uh, they're like the left and right speakers of a stereo system, so you're getting... Um, uh, you're getting a, a, a stereo sound, or if you want to think in terms of images, you've got a holographic image. You've got a three-dimensional okay. image. Your idea is three-dimensional. And what happens in the book of Isaiah is that he goes around the topic seven times. Okay. So he goes around it from chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 2, verse 4. Mm -hmm. And then he, repeat, he repeats himself from chapter 2, verse 5, to chapter 4, verse 6. Each time he begins by lambasting the people for their covenant unfaithfulness, showing that God will bring judgment on their on their dis on their disloyalty and treachery and but he will also renew and restore Jerusalem and Zion. Okay. And then in chapter uh then the third time he goes around the topic, chapter five to chapter twelve, uh is telling this same story in the context of what we call the uh the Ephraimite Syro Aramean coalition, hmm. where uh, the Assyrians were going to attack Israel, the Aramean kingdom in Damascus, the Syrian kingdom in Damascus, and the northern kingdom of Israel wanted Judah to join them in a coalition right. to, to withstand the Assyrians, so they were going to be attacked by their own, their own fellow Israelites. So that's the story of chapters 5 through 12. Then he goes around the topic again in chapters 13 to 27, hmm. dealing with the foreign nations this time. And then finally, in, well, in chapters 28 to 37, uh, this is the, the fourth time he goes around the topic. Okay. Um, sorry, the, fifth, the uh, fifth time he goes around the topic, he um, is dealing with the issue of are you going to trust God or are you going to trust your military hardware and your technology hmm. and your political alliances? Right. In chapters 38 to 55, God shows how how he is going to renew and restore Zion. The, the process that he will use, the human agents that he will use, and the means by which he will renew Zion. And then finally, in chapter chapters 56 to 66, he goes around the topic one more time okay. and ends up 
with uh, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and the new people of God who are now in a, in a new covenant community, a new covenant relationship with God. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I would imagine that those who have not read Hebrew literature much or not read much of the Old Testament or just coming to a big book like that can be really hard just to kind of see that, that repetition. But once you see that, it really makes sense of what Isaiah is doing. And as you say, putting it kind of stereophonic sound. So it really amplifies the magnitude of this movement from judgment to salvation that is there. Well, Isaiah was ahead of his time because if he goes around the topic seven times, then he has DTS (laughs) 7.2. He's he's really got the... uh, uh, he's really got the, the full sound that uh, we didn't have in our theaters till a few years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier just the historical things that were taking place in northern Israel, kind of the erosion of the, the ten northern tribes, 732, 722, right? Yes. And so this explains a little bit why there's a focus on Ephraim and a focus on Jerusalem. As Isaiah is writing, Uh, He's not just speaking about the whole nation, but he's really focusing on that city uh, that is there, isn't he? He's focusing on what's left. Yeah. So uh, there is no longer a full country of Israel. Wow. The northern kingdom of Israel has been whittled down to Ephraim, and then it falls to the Assyrians. Then um, Sennacherib comes in 701 BC, Mm -hmm. which is during the time of Hezekiah, and we actually have the records of the Assyrian king, and he says wow. that he had Hezekiah the Jew shut mm. up like a bird in a cage, and he wow. conquered all the cities of Judah. By 700 B.C., there wasn't much left except the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, wow. And this helps us explain then, doesn't it, in Isaiah 13 through 27, where we get to this long, repetitive series of judgments against the nations, why that would be good news to the people of Israel. Right? I remember the first time that I read that, having the hardest, I'm like, what is this doing here? This doesn't help me at all. Uh, this is before uh, I went to, to seminary there. Uh, but just reading, I had a really hard time just understanding uh, how that worked out. But this would be incredibly good news to know that God is defeating the enemies, but ultimately uh, he's going to be dealing with the cause of that, the, the sin of Israel that was inviting yeah. the judgment that is there. So really both of those things have to be held together. That's true, and uh, and also some Bibles call these the oracles against the foreign nations. Uh-huh. They're really the oracles concerning the foreign nations because mm, okay. each one of those messages not only announces judgment on 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 all of the nations to show that God, that Yahweh is sovereign over all the world, He's sovereign over all the nations, but there's also a message of salvation in which each nation is invited to seek refuge in Zion. Right. Uh, Because uh, one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah is that God is going to take Israel's worst enemies Mm. and incorporate them into Zion and make them part of the one people of God. It's beautiful. So two nations stand out in particular. You mentioned the Assyrians. Certainly that gets kind of a primary focus in the beginning of Isaiah. Babylon is going to have a a later focus in the book. How should we understand the relationship between those two in the book of Isaiah? I know that's one of the reasons why some will say that there are multiple authors for Isaiah, uh, because clearly 
uh, Isaiah in his time couldn't know about Babylon later on. How do you put that together? So the Assyrians and Babylonians in the book of Isaiah and how that may impact the way that we think about the the unity of the book. Liberal scholars have uh, believed that the book was written by uh, a number of a number of authors. Even evangelical scholars have argued that if the book was started by Isaiah, then it was finished by his disciples. Mm-hmm. I believe that the book was written by one person, uh, Isaiah the prophet of the eighth century, who mm-hmm. who lived and ministered between seven. 740 B.C. and probably 680 B.C. Okay. We would agree with you on that. I think that's exactly right. What we need to realize is that the period from 745 B.C. down to, let's say, 620 B.C. is what we call the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Hmm. The The Assyrian Empire had three stages to it, and this is the third and final stage. And the Assyrian giant awakens around 745, Hmm. and then uh, they have campaigns to the west, and when they get to the coast in Syria, then they go south, down through Israel and Judah, and right down into Egypt, and they eventually conquer all of Egypt. Hmm. So uh, uh, what's interesting is that in the middle of that neo-assyrian empire there's a little blip Hmm. on the screen because the babylonians there a babylonian king by the name of merodach baladan who's mentioned in the bible Mm -hmm. actually throws off the yoke of assyria for a very brief period of time Hmm. and in that brief period of time merodach baladan sends messengers across the bottom of the desert, not go not mm. going to Israel up up the Euphrates River and right. and down from the north, but he he sends messengers across the across the bottom of the desert by going from oasis to oasis okay. and comes to Hezekiah and Hezekiah shows him all his money. Mm. Uh, meaning mm. uh I can pay you to get the Assyrians off my back. So mm. So Hezekiah is not putting his faith and trust in the Lord. But then, uh, eventually, in the, in the future, the Neo-Assyrian Empire comes to an end, and we have what we call the Chaldean kings of Babylon. The Chaldeans were an Aramaic-speaking tribe that blew in from the desert and took over the control of Babylon. And uh, they created a world empire from about six... 12 BC down to um, down to about 538 BC when they were conquered by by the Medes and Persians under Cyrus the Great. Mm-hmm. The issue here is what is the role of the future hmm. in a book like Isaiah? First and foremost, the prophets were not were not called to announce the future. They were called to an to call the people back to a covenant, to a faithful covenant relationship. Yeah, it's important to remember. The major purpose and reason for the prophets was was to call the people back into a faithful relationship with God. But what happened is, when we come to the time of Hosea and Isaiah and Micah and Amos, 
the covenant relationship had reached a breaking point. Hmm. And uh, God was going to follow through on his uh, promises and threats. Uh, he was going to uh, kick them out of the land. He was going to send them away into exile. Mm -hmm. The good news is that was not the end of the story. God would would actually uh, eventually bring his people back from ex exile. He would restore them, and he would renew the covenant relationship. And so uh, this whole process required making predictions of the future for several reasons. Hmm. Uh, first of all, um, uh, how do you how do you fight idolatry? So the key problem, the key problem in Israel is their disloyalty to the covenant relationship. They're worshiping other gods, which means they're just like our society today, where mm -hmm. we turn to our medical skills, our scientific skills, our technological skills to yeah. solve our problems. We don't put our faith and trust in the Lord. We, 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 we believe that we can live however we please, uh, regardless of any ethical considerations. And uh, whenever we want to guarantee the good life for ourselves, we turn to medicine and science and technology right. yeah. to to solve, and that's what the, that's what the Israelites were doing. So, how do you prove uh, the true God as opposed to a false god? Well, there's only one proof. There's only one proof of uh, deity, and that is that the true God knows knows the future, controls the future, and can predict the future. And uh, this is something no mm. human can mm. do and no false god can do. Yeah. And we can see this today because uh, the Weather Channel is the most watched channel in America. <laughs> and uh, what, the, what, uh, what this means is we're very interested in knowing the future and we have no ability to predict it. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I'm reminded, I mean, what you're talking about there is the proof that Isaiah gives in chapters 40 through 48 that uh, yes. Yahweh has said these things beforehand so that you would know that he is God, unlike yeah. all of the idolatrous false gods around Israel. Uh, I remember a number of years ago thinking about um, open theism, which denies that God knows the future. Uh, and for a time, I mean, part of my testimony is that I believed that uh, because I hadn't really understood Isaiah 40 through 48, which makes it plain as day that God is God right. because he knows the future, declares the future, and has revealed that uh, to his prophets there at that time, even as they're messengers to the people of the day. And it's done very scientifically. So the whole point is God, God says, well, uh, you know, the Exodus is a long time ago. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to predict the future. I'm going to have these predictions attested mm -hmm. by, by witnesses. These things are going to be written down. Mm -hmm. They're public documents. They're going to be placed in the temple right. the same way we place public documents in the uh, town hall. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, when these things come true, people, it can be scientifically verified that God did predict the future. And uh, this works in several ways. How do we know that a prophet is a true prophet? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, 
he makes predictions that come true in his, in his own lifetime that can be verified by his contemporaries, uh-huh. and then we will believe and trust uh, predictions about the distant future that cannot be verified by his contemporaries. Yeah. And so, for example, uh, the Assyrians come and they besiege Jerusalem, and it looks like the city will be conquered, and the siege is so bad that a pound of butter is going for $10,000. And uh, Isaiah says, well, tomorrow you won't even be able to sell a pound of butter for five cents. Mm. And uh, that's exactly what happens. The angel of the Lord comes, and uh, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead, and uh, the king, Sennacherib, uh, has to go home. And uh, so uh, people can see that this prediction comes true, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's totally unbelievable, but it it comes to pass. Mm -hmm. So then they will believe him for the distant future. Yeah, that's really really helpful. I'm just reminded as you're kind of helping us to see this book, Dr. Gentry, how important it is to, to know some of the history. Um, obviously names and places and times are, are mentioned in Isaiah, but it takes, you know, just familiarity with the storyline of the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Israel itself to understand yes. these things. Uh, so yes. it's just a reminder to us that we can't read Isaiah apart from the rest of the Old Testament that gives us that history and even some yes. other uh, places. Let me ask another question, just kind of thinking about um, the, the servant uh, that we find in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. I think one of the first articles I ever read from you is what you wrote in the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology on the servant there in Isaiah 53. Really helpful article. We'll put a link to that uh, at the end. Um, help us to understand how the servant plays a role, especially the contrast between Cyrus, who's called a servant, uh, and uh and the suffering servant who ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. Yes, well, one of the uh, one of the central ideas in the book of Isaiah is that um, is that God will bring deliverance. He will bring. He will rescue. He will save. Mm-hmm. And he will do this through a coming king. Okay. In the third section of the book, which is chapter chapters 5 to 12, mm-hmm. there are three sections dealing with the coming king. Okay. One of them is uh, the Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is the, uh, the prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called, uh, he will be the mighty God, the everlasting mm-hmm. Father, and so on. Yeah. And the third one is the shoot from the stump of Jesse in chapter 11. Um, in the ancient, in, in, Israel, in, in Israelite literature, kings and kingdoms are portrayed as tall, stately trees. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the Assyrian forest is cut down in chapter 10, but the Davidic tree is also cut down. Hmm. But uh, the difference is the Assyrian tree doesn't grow again, but the but there is a shoot that comes out of the Davidic stump, and so God will restore the Davidic kingdom and bring deliverance. As each king comes along, people are wondering, is this the king that's going to save us? Hmm. And what Isaiah is saying, well... You know, it's not bad King Ahaz, and it's not even good King Hezekiah. We're looking mm. for someone in the future. Right, right. Then, in the 
Then in the uh, in uh, the sixth section of the book, chapters thirty-eight to uh, fifty-five, mm-hmm. he has three more sections dealing with the coming king under the title of the servant. Mm-hmm. In this section, in chapters 38 to 55, first of all, he shows them uh, the problem. Number one, they're going to go into exile, and number two, they need their sin forgiven. Mm -hmm. And then there's two agents who will bring deliverance and redemption. Mm. Cyrus the Great will deliver them from exile in Babylon, and an unnamed servant of the Lord a coming king will will bring about the forgiveness of sins and the renewal of the covenant relationship. In 38 to 55, chapter 42 uh, introduces this servant. Mm-hmm. And then later on, three poems come together, one right after another, bang, 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 uh, 49, 50, and 53. Okay. And uh, we see that this coming king isn't like Alexander the Great with a huge uh, uh, military force, but mm. he's uh, humble, he's lowly, he, uh, he, he doesn't come controlled by the love of power, but he's mm. controlled by the power of love. Yeah. Judas Iscariot thought the, the enemy was Rome, mm. and he wanted to send all the Romans to hell, yeah. Put Israel on top, glory yeah. to Israel. But the real enemy is is our sin and our yeah. and our disloyalty and our treachery in our in 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 our relationships and the death that that brings about. And Satan, who's fostering that, and Jesus Christ met those enemies on the cross and completely clobbered them. Yeah. And so there's uh, Isaiah is predicting. Mm-hmm how a coming king will deal with our, with the sin of God's people and and bring them back into a right relationship with himself. Yeah. Now that's that's really helpful just to see how the whole of Isaiah is moving to so much of a climax in Isaiah 53 and then the outworking of that moves to the end. I'm just struck by how you're describing the servant of the Lord there who does not protect himself, but rather lays down his life for the sins of his people and sins for his posterity. I mean, that's the language of Isaiah 53 contrasted that with Hezekiah, who, when he finds out uh, that he will be fine, but his children will be led, his posterity will be led into exile. Well, then he rejoices. And yet uh, what a wicked thing for him to say and to think this servant comes, does not protect himself, lays his life down, so that he can die in our place for our sins. And, of course, we know the, yeah. the full picture of that in, in Christ Jesus. Let me ask one final question just as we kind of bring this to a, to a close, Dr. Gentry. In Luke yeah. chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus is in the synagogue, and he, he, he reads Isaiah 61 uh, and then says, you know, in your hearing, this is fulfilled today. Uh, we see many places in the New Testament that pick up places from Isaiah. How should we think, and maybe this even goes to the, the parallel um, structure uh, of Isaiah, because we see multiple places where Christ is fulfillment. How should we read Isaiah and its fulfillment uh, in Christ? How, how do we bring those two things together? How can you help us to read Isaiah with, with a focus on Christ? Well, he, uh, in, in uh, the last section, chapters 56 to 66, he mm-hmm. goes around the topic uh, one more time. 
he focuses on deliverance and rescue and and salvation is coming through a a, a coming king hmm. and this king is pictured as a conquering king but at the same time uh, you have passages like um, chapter 61 where the coming king is um, has a concern for the for the destitute, for the needy, for the poor, for the people in prison, for for those who are spiritually blinded. I think their blindness is no doubt a, a physical blindness, but at the same time a, a, a picture, mm-hmm. a, a symbol of, of, of spiritual blindness. Right. Um, earlier in chapters 38 to 55, Israel is... Is, is described as a blind servant. She's unable to see the real issues and understand what's really going on in mm. terms of the events that are occurring in her life and are due to her covenant disloyalty and, and what God's trying to do to rectify that. So okay. there are some very interesting prophecies there. Yeah. Uh, and we see... Um, these are taken up by the authors of the New Testament. So, for example, in chapter 56, uh, where we see the new covenant community being formed, mm-hmm. uh, Isaiah says, don't let the foreigner say that I'm excluded. Don't let the mm-hmm. eunuch say that I'm excluded. And he shows how God takes the eunuch and the foreigner and includes them in the new covenant new creation people of God and yeah. when when Luke when Luke is unfolding his story in Luke and Acts so mm-hmm. for example in the book of Acts when he shows when he shows uh, the eunuch coming to Christ and he shows the the foreigners coming to Christ he's saying that wow. the Davidic kingdom is being fulfilled mm. in the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. He's showing how the new creation community, the new covenant community is being formed, and and when people gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to drink and eat, mm-hmm. they're actually eating and drinking in the kingdom of God in, a, in, yeah. a, in an already sense, yep. uh, even though there's a not yet to that as well. Of course. Yeah, because we come to the end in Isaiah 66, and oftentimes I think people move to the very end of history because obviously the full restoration of creation has not happened yet. But in so many ways with the inauguration of the new covenant, there is the beginning of the new creation. So Paul can say that we are new creatures in Christ. And so really there's not a postponement of the kingdom, not a postponement of those realities, but an already and a not yet uh, to them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is really helpful, and I just realized just kind of, kind of wrapping this up, I think we're only scratching the surface uh, here yeah. in Isaiah. There, there is so much goodness that is found there. Um, any last thoughts on just encouragements for those who are reading the Bible that might be discouraged because how big it is or just things that they might be keeping an eye out for as they read it? I think one of the most important things is to read the book according to the kind of literature. Hmm. And I illustrate that in uh, how to read and understand the biblical prophets. Uh, 
You know, when you have a newspaper, there's the news on the front page. Mm-hmm. But there's many different kinds of literature. There's the business section. There's yeah. the stocks and bonds. There's the the leisure, travel, real estate, mm, uh, classifieds, yeah. obituaries, uh, comics, and um, uh, in the same way, there's many different kinds of literature in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, the issue is not the issue is not uh, literal interpretation versus mm. uh, symbolic interpretation. Right. That's a that's a completely false dichotomy. The issue is when a person turns the page and they see the comics in the newspaper, they don't they don't say, "Well, I must remember how to read the comics. What are the rules for reading <laughs> comics?" We just automatically do that. But I think the problem in the last 100 years is that people have tried to read these prophetic texts the same way they read Romans, and they don't mm. realize it's not the same kind of literature. Yeah. And so that's what I've tried to do in my little book is to explain, well, here are the rules. Yeah. Uh, here, here, here is how these authors are trying to communicate. Here are the, here is the way that they communicate. Here are their communicative methods. And once you understand uh, those, you can easily read these texts for yourself and not be bogged down. Yeah, no, that's really true. Uh, like I said, I read your your little book uh, about a year ago, and it was incredibly helpful. Uh, and anyone who's listening to this, I would encourage you to pick up the book by Peter Gentry, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets. Uh, it reminds me, we need to put that on our shelf at church. We'll do that uh, today, put an order in there for anyone reading from our church can uh, pick up a copy of that. Um, Dr. Gentry, thank you for your time. I appreciate just your, your encouragement and help here and uh, look forward to talking more with our folks about uh, some of the things you shared with us here today. All right. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Well, as you can tell, Dr. Gentry has a lot to offer with the book of Isaiah. Uh, again, his book, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets, is a, is a great resource to understand the book of Isaiah and the whole genre of prophetic literature. They're incredible challenges that are found in going back in time to to read and understand what is being said. Not only are there challenges with the history and learning what is going on in Jerusalem and in Judah and in Israel, uh, but also the literature that is very different from our own. And as he mentioned at the end, if we tried to read Isaiah the way that we read uh, the New Testament letters of Paul or even one of the Gospels, uh, we're going to find great frustration and challenge. But if we learn the way that the authors of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, wrote their works, then we can begin to find what it is that they're saying to us, and that leads us back to Christ. So that's our goal as we continue to go through podcasts together uh, this year, is to read these books with one another uh, and to read them better uh, as the Spirit of Christ continues to teach us through His Word. Look forward to joining you next time on the VMAS podcast.